0: Chapter Three of The Night Side of Nature, or Ghosts and Ghost Seers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amy Graymore. The Night Side of Nature, or Ghosts and Ghost Seers, by Catherine Crow. Chapter Three: Waking and Sleeping, and How the Dweller in the Temple Sometimes Looks Abroad. To begin with the most simple, or rather I should say the most ordinary, class of phenomena, for we can scarcely call that simple, the mystery of which we have never been able to penetrate—I mean dreaming—everybody's experience will suffice to satisfy them that their ordinary dreams take place in a state of imperfect sleep, and that this imperfect sleep may be caused by any bodily or mental derangement whatever, or even from an ill-made bed or too much or too little covering, and it is not difficult to conceive that the strange, confused, and disjointed visions we are subject to, on these occasions, may proceed from some parts of the brain being less at rest than the others, so that, assuming phrenology to be fact, one organ is not in a state to correct the impressions of another. Of such vain and insignificant visions I need scarcely say it is not my intention to treat, But at the same time i must observe that when we have admitted to the above explanation as far as it goes we have not even in regard to them made much progress toward removing the difficulty if dreaming resembled thinking the explanations might be quite satisfactory but the truth is that dreaming is not thinking as we think in our waking state but is more analogous to thinking in delirium or acute mania or in that chronic condition which gives rise to sensuous illusions, in our ordinary normal state conceiving of places or persons does not enable us to see them or hold communion with them nor do we fancy that we do either it is true that i have heard some painters say that by closing their eyes and concentrating their thoughts on an object they can bring it more or less vividly before them and Blake professed actually to see his sitters when they were not present. But whatever interpretations we may put upon this curious faculty, his case was clearly abnormal, and connected with some personal peculiarity, either physical or psychical, and after making the most of it, it must be admitted that it can enter into no sort of comparison with that we possess in sleep, when, in our most ordinary dreams, untrammelled by time or space we visit the uttermost ends of the earth fly in the air swim in the sea listen to beautiful music and eloquent orations behold the most charming as well as the most loathsome objects and not only see but converse with our friends absent or present dead or alive Every one, i think will grant that there is the widest possible difference between conceiving of these things when awake and dreaming them When we dream we do we see we say we hear etc and etc that is we believe at the time we do so and what more can be said of us when we are awake than that we believe we are doing seeing saying hearing etc it is by external circumstances and the result of our actions that we are able to decide whether we have actually done a thing or seen a place or only dreamt that we had done so and as i have said above After some lapse of time, we are not always able to distinguish between the two. While dreaming we frequently ask ourselves whether we are awake or asleep, and nothing is more common than to hear people say, Well, I think I did, or heard so-and-so, but I am not sure whether it was so or whether I dreamt it. Thus, therefore, the very lowest order of dreaming, the most disjointed and perplexed, is far removed from the most vivid presentations of our waking thoughts and it is in this respect i think that the explanations of the phenomena hitherto offered by phrenologists and the metaphysicians of this country are inadequate and unsatisfactory while as regards the analogy between the visions of sleep and delirium whatever similarity there may be in the effects we cannot suppose the cause to be identical since in delirium the images and delusions are the result of excessive action of the brain, which we must conclude to be the very reverse of its conditions in sleep, Pinel certainly has hazarded an opinion that sleep is occasioned by an efflux of blood to the head, and consequent compression of the brain, a theory which would have greater weight were sleep more strictly periodical than it is, but which at present it seems impossible to reconcile with many established facts some of the german physiologists and psychologists have taken a deeper view of this question of dreaming from considering it in connection with the phenomena of animal magnetism and although their theories differ in some respects they all unite in looking toward that department of nature for instruction while one section of these inquirers the exegetical society of stockholm included calls in the aid of supernatural agency another among whom dr joseph edamoser of berlin appears to be one of the most eminent maintains that the explanation of the mystery is to be chiefly sought in the great and universal law of polarity which extends not only beyond the limits of this earth but beyond the limits of this system which must necessarily be in connection with all others so that there is thus an eternal and never-ceasing interaction of which from the multiplicity and contrariety of the influences we are insensible just as we are insensible to the pressure of the atmosphere from its impinging on us equally on all sides waking and sleeping are the day and night sides of organic life during which alternations an animal is placed in different relations to the external world and to these alternations all organisms are subject the completeness and independence of each individual organism are an exact ratio to the number and completeness of the organs it develops. And thus the locomotive animal has the advantage of the plant, or the zoophyte, while of the animal kingdom man is the most complete and independent, and although still a member of the universal whole, and therefore incapable of isolating himself, yet better able than any other organism to ward off external influences and comprise his world within himself but according to dr ennemoser one of the consequences of this very completeness is a weak and insignificant development of instinct and thus the healthy waking conscious man is of all organisms the least sensible to the impressions of this universal intercommunication and polarity although at the same time partaking of the nature of the plant and the animal he is subject like the first, to all manner of atmospheric, telluric, and periodic influences, and frequently exhibits, like the second, peculiar instinctive appetites and desires, and in some individual organizations, very marked antipathies and susceptibilities with regard to certain objects and influences, even when not placed in any evident relation with them. According to this theory, sleep is a retrograde step. A retreating into a lower sphere, in which condition the sensuous functions being in abeyance, the instincts somewhat resume their sway. In sleep and in sickness, he says, the higher animals and man fall in a physico-organical point of view, from their individual independence, or power of self-sustainment, and their polar relation, that is, their relation to the healthy and waking man, becomes changed from a positive to a negative one all men in regard to each other as well as all nature being the subjects of this polarity it is to be remembered that this theory of dr ennemosers was promulgated before the discoveries of baron von reichenbach in magnetism were made public and the susceptibility to magnetic influences in the animal organism which the experiments of the latter go to establish is certainly in its favour But while it pretends to explain the condition of the sleepers, and may possibly be of some service in our investigations into the mystery of dreaming, it leaves us as much in the dark as ever, with respect to the cause of our falling into this negative state, an inquiry in which little progress seems to have been hitherto made. With respect to dreaming, Dr. Ennemoser rejects the physiological theory which maintains that in sleep, magnetic or otherwise, The activity of the brain is transferred to the ganglionic system, and that the former falls into a subordinate relation. Dreaming, he says, is the gradual awakening of activity in the organs of imagination, whereby the presentation of sensuous objects to the spirit, which had been discontinued in profound sleep, is resumed. Dreaming, he adds, also arises from the secret activity of the spirit in the innermost sensuous organs of the brain busying the fancy with subjective sensuous images the objective conscious day life giving place to the creative dominion of the poetical genius to which night becomes day and universal nature its theatre of action and thus the supersensuous or transcendent nature of the spirit becomes more manifest in dreaming than in the waking state but in considering these phenomena man must be viewed in both his psychical and physical relations and as equally subject to spiritual as to natural operations and influences since during the continuance of life neither soul nor body can act quite independently of the other for although it be the immortal spirit which perceives it is through the instrumentality of the sensuous organs that it does so for of absolute spirit without body we can form no conception What is here meant seems to be that the brain becomes the world to the spirit, before the impressions from the external world do actually come streaming through by means of the external sensuous organs. The inner spiritual light illumines, till the outward physical light overpowers and extinguishes it. But in this state the brain, which is the storehouse of acquired knowledge, is not in a condition to apply its acquisitions effectively while the intuitive knowledge of the spirit, if the sleep be imperfect, is clouded by its interference. Other physiologists, however, believe, from the numerous and well-attested cases of the transference of the senses in disease to the pit of the stomach, that the activity of the brain in sleep is transferred to the epigastric region. The instances of this phenomenon, as related by Dr. Pettitin and others, have been frequently published. I need not here quote, but as Dr. Passavant observes, it is well known that the functions of the nerves differ in some animals, and that one set can supply the place of another, as in those cases where there is a great susceptibility to light, though no eyes can be discovered. These physiologists believe that even during the most profound sleep the spirit retains its activity a proposition which indeed we cannot doubt it wakes though the senses sleep retreating into its infinite depths like the sun at night living on its spiritual life undisturbed while the body sinks into a state of vegetative tranquillity nor does it follow that the soul is unconscious in sleep because in waking we have frequently lost all memory of its consciousness since by the repose of the sensuous organs the bridge between waking and sleeping is removed and the recollections of one state are not carried into the other. It will occur here to everyone how often in the instant of waking we are not only conscious that we have been dreaming, but are also conscious of the subject of the dream, which we try in vain to grasp, but which eludes us and is gone for ever the moment we have passed into a state of complete wakefulness now with respect to this so-called dreaming in profound sleep it is a thing no one can well doubt who thoroughly believes that his body is a temple built for the dwelling of an immortal spirit for we cannot conceive of spirit sleeping or needing that restoration which we know to be the condition of earthly organisms if therefore the spirit wakes may we not suppose that the more it is disentangled from the obstructions of the body the more clear will be its perceptions, and that, therefore, in the profound natural sleep of the sensuous organs, we may be in a state of clear-seeing. All who have attended to the subject are aware that the clear-seeing of magnetic patients depends on the depth of their sleep. Whatever circumstance, internal or external, tends to interrupt this profound repose of the sensuous organs, inevitably obscures their perceptions again with respect to the not carrying with us the recollections of one state into the other should not this lead us to suspect that sleeping and waking are two different spheres of existence partaking of the nature of that double life of which the records of human physiology have presented us with various instances wherein a patient finds himself utterly divested of all recollection of past events and acquired knowledge and has to begin life and education anew, till another transition takes place, wherein he recovers what he had lost, while he at the same time loses all he had lately gained, which he only recovers once more by another transition, restoring him to his lately acquired knowledge, but again obliterating his original stock, thus alternately passing from one state to the other, and disclosing a double life. An educated man in one condition, a child learning his alphabet in the next. Where the transition from one state to another is complete, memory is entirely lost. But there are cases in which the change, being either gradual or modified, the recollections of one life are carried more or less into the other. We know this to be the case with magnetic sleepers, as it is with ordinary dreamers, and most persons have met with instances of the dream of one night being continued in the next. Trevor Rannis mentions the case of a student who regularly began to talk the moment he fell asleep, the subject of his discourse being a dream, which he always took up at the exact point at which he had left it the previous morning. Of this dream he had never the slightest recollection in his waking state. A daughter of Sir George Mackenzie, who died at an early age, was endowed with a remarkable genius for music, and was an accomplished organist. This young lady dreamed, during an illness, that she was at a party, where she had heard a new piece of music, which made so great an impression on her by its novelty and beauty, that on awaking she besought her attendants to bring her some paper, that she might write it down before she had forgotten it, an indulgence which, apprehensive of excitement, her medical attendant unfortunately forbade for apart from the additional psychological interest that would have been attached to the fact, the effects of compliance, judging from what ensued, would probably have been soothing rather than otherwise. About ten days afterward she had a second dream wherein she again found herself at a party, where she descried on the desk of a pianoforte in a corner of the room an open book, in which, with astonished delight, she recognized the same piece of music which she immediately proceeded to play and then awoke. The piece was not of a short or fugitive character, but in the style of an overture. The question, of course, remains as to whether she was composing the music in her sleep, or, by an act of clairvoyance, was perceiving some that actually existed. Either is possible, for although she might have been incapable of composing so elaborate a piece in her waking state, there are many instances on record of persons performing intellectual feats in dreams to which they were unequal when awake a very eminent person assured me that he had once composed some lines in his sleep i think it was a sonnet which far exceeded any of his waking performances of that description somewhat analogous to this sort of double life is the case of the young girl mentioned by dr Abercrombie and others whose employment was keeping cattle, and who slept for some time, much to her own annoyance, in the room adjoining one occupied by an itinerant musician. The man, who played exceedingly well, being an enthusiast in his art, frequently practiced the greater part of the night, performing on his violin very complicated and difficult compositions, while the girl, so far from discovering any pleasure in his performances, complained bitterly of being kept awake by the noise. Sometime after this she fell ill and was removed to the house of a charitable lady, who undertook the charge of her, and here, by and by, the family were amazed by frequently hearing the most exquisite music in the night, which they at length discovered to proceed from the girl. The sounds were those of a violin, and the tuning and other preliminary processes were accurately imitated." She went through long and elaborate pieces, and afterward was heard imitating in the same way the sounds of a pianoforte that was in the house. She also talked very cleverly on the subjects of religion and politics, and discussed with great judgment the characters and conduct of persons, public and private. Awake she knew nothing of these things, but was, on the contrary, stupid, heavy, and had no taste whatever for music. Phrenology would probably interpret this phenomenon by saying that the lower elements of the cerebral-spinal axis, as organs of sensation, etc., etc., being asleep, the cluster of the higher organs requisite for the above combinations were not only awake, but rendered more active from the repose of the others. But to me it appears that we here see the inherent faculties of the spirit manifesting themselves." While the body slept, the same faculties must have existed when it was in the waking state. But the impressions and manifestations were then dependent on the activity and perfection of the sensuous organs, which seemed to have been of an inferior order, and consequently no rays of this indwelling genius could pierce the coarse integument in which it was lodged. Similar unexpected faculties have been not unfrequently manifested by the dying, and we may conclude to a certain degree from the same cause, namely, that the incipient death of the body is leaving the spirit more unobstructed. Dr. Steinbeck mentions the case of a clergyman, who being summoned to administer the last sacraments to a dying peasant, found him, to his surprise, praying aloud in Greek and Hebrew, a mystery which could be no otherwise explained than by the circumstance of his having when a child frequently heard the then minister of the parish praying in those languages he had however never understood the prayers nor indeed paid any attention to them still less had he been aware that they lived in his memory It would give much additional interest to this story had Dr. Steinbeck mentioned how far the man, now, while uttering the words, understood their meaning, whether he was aware of what he was saying, or was only repeating the words by rote. With regard to the extraordinary faculty of memory manifested in these and similar cases, I shall have some observations to make in a subsequent part of this book. Parallel instances are those of idiots who, either in a somnambulic state, or immediately previous to death, have spoken as if inspired. At St. John de Maureen, in Savoy, there was a dumb Cretan, who, having fallen into a normal state of somnambulism, not only was found to speak with ease, but also to the purpose. A faculty which disappeared, however, whenever he awoke. Dumb persons have likewise been known to speak when at the point of death. The possibility of suggesting dreams to some sleepers by whispering in the ear is a well-known fact, but this can doubtless only be practicable when the sensuous organs are partly awake. Then, as with magnetic patients in a state of incomplete sleep, we have only reverie and imagination in place of clear seeing. The next class of dreams are those which partake of the nature of second sight, or prophecy, and of these there are various kinds some being plain and literal in their premonitions, others allegorical and obscure, while some also regard the most unimportant, and others the most grave, events of our lives. A gentleman engaged in business in the south of Scotland, for example, dreams that on entering his office in the morning he sees seated on a certain stool a person formerly in his service as clerk, of whom he had neither heard nor thought for some time. He inquires the motive of the visit, and is told that such and such circumstances have brought the stranger to that part of the country. He could not forbear visiting his old quarters, expressing at the same time a wish to spend a few days in his former occupation, etc., etc. The gentleman, being struck with the vividness of the illusion, relates his dream at breakfast, and, to his surprise, on going to his office, there sits the man, and the dialogue that ensues is precisely that of the dream. I have heard of numerous instances of this kind of dream, where no previous expectation nor excitement of mind could be found to account for them, and where the fulfillment was too exact and literal, in all particulars, to admit of their being explained away by the ready resource of an extraordinary coincidence. There are also on record, in both this country and others, many perfectly well-authenticated cases of people obtaining prizes in the lottery through having dreamed of the fortunate numbers as many numbers however may have been dreamed of that were not drawn prizes we can derive no conclusion from this circumstance a very remarkable instance of this kind of dreaming occurred a few years since to mr a f an eminent scotch advocate while staying in the neighbourhood of loch Fine, who dreamed one night that he saw a number of people in the street following a man to the scaffold he discovered the features of the criminal in the cart distinctly and for some reason or other, which he could not account for, felt an extraordinary interest in his fate, insomuch that he joined the throng, and accompanied him to the place that was to terminate his earthly career. This interest was the more unaccountable that the man had an exceedingly unprepossessing countenance, but it was nevertheless so vivid as to induce the dreamer to ascend the scaffold and address him, with a view to enable him to escape the impending catastrophe. Suddenly, however, while he was talking to him, the whole scene dissolved away and the sleeper awoke. Being a good deal struck with the lifelike reality of the vision, and the impression made on his mind by the features of this man, he related the circumstance to his friends at breakfast, adding that he should know him anywhere if he saw him. A few jests being made on the subject, the thing was forgotten. On the afternoon of the same day the advocate was informed that two men wanted to speak to him, and on going into the hall he was struck with amazement at perceiving that one of them was the hero of his dream. "'We are accused of a murder,' said they, "'and we wish to consult you. Three of us went out last night in a boat, an accident has happened, our comrade is drowned, and they want to make us accountable for him.' The Advocate then put some interrogations to them, and the result produced in his mind, by their answers, was a conviction of their guilt. Probably the recollection of his dream rendered the effects of this conviction more palpable, for one addressing the other said in Gaelic, "'We have come to the wrong man. He is against us.' "'There is a higher power than I against you,' returned the gentleman, "'and the only advice I can give you is, if you are guilty, fly immediately.' Upon this they went away, and the next thing he heard was that they were taken into custody on suspicion of the murder. The account of the affair was that, as they said, the three had gone out together on the preceding evening, and that in the morning the body of one of them had been found on the shore, with a cut across his forehead. The father and the friend of the victim had waited on the banks of the lake till the boat came in, and then demanded their companion of whom, however, they professed themselves unable to give any account. Upon this the old man led them to his cottage for the purpose of showing them the body of his son. One entered, and at the sight of it burst into a passion of tears. The other refused to do so, saying his business called him immediately home, and went sulkily away. This last was the man seen in the dream. After a fortnight's incarceration the former of these was liberated and he then declared to the advocate his intention of bringing an action of damages for false imprisonment. He was advised not to do it. "'Leave well alone,' said the lawyer, "'and if you'll take my advice, make off while you can.' The man, however, refused to fly. He declared that he really did not know what had occasioned the death of his comrade. The latter had been at one end of the boat and he at the other. When he looked round he was gone, but whether he had fallen overboard and cut his head as he fell— or whether he had been struck and pushed into the water he did not know. The advocate became finally satisfied of this man's innocence, but the authorities, thinking it absurd to try one and not the other, again laid hands on him, and it fell to Mr. A. F. to be the defender of both. The difficulty was not to separate their cases in his pleading, for, however morally convinced of the different ground on which they stood, his duty, professionally, was to obtain the acquittal of both in which he finally succeeded, as regarded the charge of murder. They were, therefore, sentenced to two years' imprisonment, and, so far as the dream is concerned, here ends the story. There remains, however, a curious sequel to it. A few years afterward, the same gentleman, being in a boat on Loch fine in company with Sir T. D. L., happened to be mentioning these curious circumstances when one of the boatmen said that he knew well about those two men, and that a very strange thing had occurred in regard to one of them. This one, on inquiry, proved to be the subject of the dream, and the strange thing was this. On being liberated, he had quitted that part of the country, and in process of time had gone to Greenock, and thence embarked in a vessel for Cork. But the vessel seemed fated never to reach its destination one misfortune happened after another till at length the sailors said this won't do there must be a murderer on board with us as is usual when such a persuasion exists they drew lots three times and each time it fell on that man he was consequently put on shore and the vessel went on its way without him what had become of him afterward was not known A friend of mine, being in London, dreamed that she saw her little boy playing on the terrace of her house in Northumberland, that he fell and hurt his arm, and she saw him lying apparently dead. The dream recurred two or three times on the same night, and she awoke her husband, saying she feared something must have happened to Henry. In due course of post, a letter arrived from the governess saying that she was sorry to have to communicate that while playing on the terrace that morning master henry had fallen over a heap of stones and broken his arm adding that he had fainted after the accident and had lain for some time insensible the lady to whom this dream occurred is not aware having ever manifested this faculty before or since mrs w dreamed that she saw people ascending by a ladder to the chamber of her stepson john wakes and she says she is afraid he is dead, and that there was something odd in her dream about a watch and a candle. In the morning a messenger is sent to inquire for the gentleman, and they find people ascending to his chamber window by a ladder, the door of the room being locked. They discover him dead on the floor, with his watch in his hand, and the candle between his feet. The same lady dreamed that she saw a friend in great agony, and that she heard him say they were tearing his flesh from his bones. He was some time afterwards seized with inflammation, lay as she had seen him, and made use of those exact words. A friend of mine dreamed lately that somebody said her nephew must not be bled as it would be dangerous. The young man was quite well, and there had been no design of bleeding him, but on the following morning he had a tooth drawn, and an effusion of blood ensued which lasted some days and caused a good deal of uneasiness a farmer in worcestershire dreamed that his little boy of twelve years old had fallen from the wagon and was killed the dream recurred three times in one night but unwilling to yield to superstitious fears he allowed the child to accompany the wagoner to kidderminster fair the driver was very fond of the boy and he felt assured it would take care of him but having occasion to go a little out of the road to leave a parcel the man bade the child walk on with the wagon and he would meet him at a certain spot on arriving there the horses were coming quietly forward but the boy was not with them and on retracing the road he was found dead having apparently fallen from the shafts and been crushed by the wheels a gentleman who resided near one of the scottish lakes dreamt that he saw a number of persons surrounding a body which had just been drawn out of the water on approaching the spot he perceived that it is himself and the assistants are his own friends and retainers Alarmed at the lifelike reality of the vision, he resolved to elude the threatened destiny by never venturing on the lake again. On one occasion, however, it became quite indispensable that he should do so, and as the day was quite calm, he yielded to the necessity, on a condition that he should be put ashore at once on the opposite side, while the rest of the party proceeded to their destinations, where he would meet them. This was accordingly done. The boat skimmed gaily over the smooth waters and arrived safely at the rendezvous the gentlemen laughing at the superstition of their companion, while he stood smiling on the bank to receive them. But alas, the fates were inexorable. The little promontory that supported him had been undermined by the water, it gave way beneath his feet, and life was extinct before he could be rescued. This circumstance was related to me by a friend of the family. Mr. S. was the son of an Irish bishop, who set somewhat more value on the things of this world then became his function. He had always told his son that there was but one thing he could not forgive, and that was a bad marriage, meaning by a bad marriage a poor one. As cautions of this sort do not by any means prevent young people falling in love, Mr. S. fixed his affections on Lady O, a fair young widow, without any fortune, and aware that it would be useless to apply for his father's consent, he married her without asking it. They were consequently exceedingly poor, and indeed nearly all they had to live on was a small sinecure of forty pounds per annum, which Dean Swift procured for him. While in this situation Mr. S. dreamed one night that he was in the cathedral in which he had formerly been accustomed to attend service, that he saw a stranger, habited as a bishop, occupying his father's throne, and that, on applying to the verger for an explanation, The man said that the bishop was dead, and that he had expired just as he was adding a codicil to his will in his son's favour. The impression made by the dream was so strong, that Mr. S. felt that he should have no repose till he had obtained news from home, and as the most speedy way of doing so was to go there himself, he started on horseback, much against the advice of his wife, who attached no importance whatever to the circumstance. He had scarcely accomplished half his journey. he met a courier bearing the intelligence of his father's death and when he reached home he found that there was a codicil attached to the will, of the greatest importance to his own future prospects but the old gentleman had expired with the pen in his hand just as he was about to sign it in this unhappy position reduced to hopeless indigence the friends of the young man proposed that he should present himself at the viceregal palace on the next levy day in hopes that some interest might be excited in his favor, to which, with reluctance, he consented. As he was ascending the stairs, he was met by a gentleman, whose dress indicated that he belonged to the church. "'Good heavens!' said he to the friend who accompanied him. "'Who is that?' "'That is Mr... of so-and-so.' "'Then he will be the Bishop of L,' returned Mr. S., for that is the man I saw occupying my father's throne.' "'Impossible,' replied the other. "'He has no interest whatever, and has no more chance of being a bishop than I have.' "'You will see,' replied Mr. S. I am certain he will.' They had made their obeisance above, and were returning, when there was a great cry without, and everybody rushed to the doors and windows to inquire what had happened. The horses attached to the carriage of a young nobleman had become restive, and were endangering the life of their master.' when mr blank rushed forward and at the peril of his own seized their heads and afforded lord c time to descend before they broke through all restraint and dashed away through the interest of this nobleman and his friends to whom mr blank had been previously quite unknown he obtained the c of l these circumstances were related to me by a member of the family it would be tedious to relate all the instances of this sort of dreaming which have come to my knowledge but were they even much more rare than they are and were there none of a graver and more mysterious kind it might certainly occasion some surprise that they should have excited so little attention when stories of this sort are narrated they are listened to with wonder for the moment and then forgotten and few people reflect on the deep significance of the facts or the important consequences to us involved in the question of how with our limited faculties which cannot foretell the events of the next moment, we should suddenly become prophets and seers. The following dream, as it regards the fate of a very interesting person, and is, I believe, very little known, I will relate, though the story is of somewhat an old date. Major Andre, the circumstances of whose lamented death are too well known to make it necessary for me to detail them here, was a friend of Miss Seward's and previously to his embarkation for america he made a journey into derbyshire to pay her a visit and it was arranged that they should ride over to see the wonders of the peak and introduce andre to newton her minstrel as she called him and to mr cunningham the curate who was also a poet while these two gentlemen were awaiting the arrival of their guests of whose intentions they had been apprised mr cunningham mentioned to newton that on the preceding night he had had a very extraordinary dream which he could not get out of his head. He had fancied himself in a forest. The place was strange to him, and while looking about he perceived a horseman approaching at great speed, who had scarcely reached the spot where the dreamer stood, when three men rushed out of the thicket, and seizing his bridle hurried him away after closely searching his person. The countenance of the stranger being very interesting. The sympathy felt by the sleeper for his apparent misfortune awoke him, but he presently fell asleep again, and dreamed that he was standing near a great city, among thousands of people, and that he saw the same person he had seen seized in the wood, brought out, and suspended to a gallows. When Andre and Miss Seward arrived, he was horror-struck to perceive that his new acquaintance was the antitype of the man in the dream. "'Mr. C., a friend of mine,' told me the other day that he had dreamed he had gone to see a lady of his acquaintance, and that she had presented him with a purse. In the morning he mentioned the circumstance to his wife, adding that he wondered what should have made him dream of a person he had not been in any way led to think of, and, above all, that she should give him a purse. On the same day a letter arrived from that lady to Mrs. C., containing a purse, of which she begged her acceptance. Here was the imperfect foreshadowing of the fact, probably from unsound sleep. Another friend lately dreamed, one Thursday night, that he saw an acquaintance of his thrown from his horse, and that he was lying on the ground, with the blood streaming from his face, which was much cut. He mentioned his dream in the morning, and being an entire disbeliever in such phenomena, he could not account for the impression made on his mind this was so strong that on saturday he could not forbear calling at his friend's house who he was told was in bed having been thrown from his horse on the previous day and much injured about the face relations of this description have been more or less familiar to the world in all times and places and the recurrence of the phenomena too frequent to admit of their reality being disputed various theories were promulgated to account for them and indeed there scarcely seems to be a philosopher or historian among the Greeks and Romans who does not make some allusion to this ill-understood department of nature, while, among the eastern nations, the faith in such mysterious revelations remains even yet undiminished. Spirits, good and evil, or the divinities of the heathen mythology, were generally called in to remove the difficulty though some philosophers, rejecting this supernatural interference, sought the explanation in merely physical causes. In the Druidical rites of the northern nations, women bore a considerable part. They were priestesses, who gave forth oracles and prophecies much after the manner of the Pythonesses of the Grecian temples, and no doubt drawing their inspiration from the same sources namely from the influences of magnetism and from narcotics when the pure rites of christianity superseded the heathen forms of worship tradition kept alive the memory of these vatinations together with some of the arcana of the druidical groves and hence in the middle ages arose the race of so-called witches and sorcerers who were partly impostors and partly self-deluded nobody thought of seeking the explanation of the facts they witnessed in natural causes. What had formerly been attributed to the influence of the gods was now attributed to the influence of the devil, and a league with Satan was the universal solvent of all difficulties. Persecution followed, of course, and men, women, and children were offered up to the demon of superstition till the candid and rational part of mankind, taking fright at the Holocaust— began to put in their protest and lead out a reaction which, like all reactions, ran right into the opposite extreme. From believing everything, they ceased to believe anything, and after swallowing unhesitatingly the most monstrous absurdities, they relieved themselves of the whole difficulty by denying the plainest facts, while what it was impossible to deny was referred to imagination, that most abused word, which explained nothing but left the matter as obscure as it was before. Man's spiritual nature was forgotten, and what the senses could not apprehend, nor the understanding account for, was pronounced to be impossible. Thank God we have lived through that age, and in spite of the struggles of the materialistic school, we are fast advancing to a better. The traditions of the saints who suffered the most appalling tortures, and slept or smiled the while, can scarcely be rejected now. When we are daily hearing of people undergoing frightful operations, either in a state of insensibility, or while they believe themselves revelling in delight. Nor can the psychological intimations which these facts offer be much longer overlooked. One revelation must lead to another, and the wise men of the world will, ere long, be obliged to give in their adherence to Shakespeare's much-quoted axiom and confess that there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in their philosophy. End of chapter 3